Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and I did not... (laughs) I can't even get through it. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Josh. (laughs) That was worth it. That was totally worth it. Thank you for that. We can look forward to so much more of that. Mm -hmm. Because in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we're talking about the films of 2003. And this episode is about the future cult classic of the year, which is Tommy Wiseau's The Room. The future cult classic of all time. Yes. Mm -hmm. And obviously, The Room is such a juggernaut that much like The Lord of the Rings, it's it's just, it's so expansive that we couldn't possibly let it pass by. So, yeah. The Room. (laughs) So much to talk about. Josh, you're right. I would have canceled the podcast if we got through this season. I mean, we should let Dave jump in because Dave loves the movie and he was going to make it his pick. We said it should be the cult classic because this is the definition of a cult classic, right? Like it made like $1,900 in its initial theatrical run and has since turned a profit off of a $6 million budget that is insane that it costs $6 million. But it's because of the midnight showings and the cult showings. And like we talked about with Geely, we kind of hope that that would be more like this, where you could go with a group of friends and act it out and Rocky Horror picture it, and it just didn't connect like that. Whereas this one, it's it's all good, baby. It's all coming together. And and just let's say, a year that includes both The Room and Geely, what a year for cinema, really. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Dave, uh, this isn't Dave's pick. We talked about Dave's other pick, which was old school in a previous episode. But Dave, Dave loves this movie certainly more than anyone I know. So uh, do you want to give a give a few words here, Dave? Yeah, I mean, th- this movie is super important to me. I mean, I. Th- oh, hi, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hi, Jason. There, there's really almost no other movie I could think of that is this much fun to watch with a group of friends. And I, I just I just have a blast every single time I watch this with people. Um, so as Jason mentioned, this did only make $1,900 in its initial two week run in a a theater in LA that Tommy Wiseau had rented out, opened in June, 2003. Um, so, I mean, we're talking about it as a 2003 film, but not a whole lot of people saw it in 2003. I mean, it took a long time to build this, this cult audience. Um, and it didn't, you know, it barely made that money off of its $6 million budget from Tommy Wiseau. Although to be fair, both of those are figures that are reported by outside sources that may not be entirely accurate. That's sort of the best that we can get. What is accurate, Josh, is from 2004 in June at the same theater where he ran the premiere all the way through 2012, he started doing midnight showings the last Saturday of every month, and they sold out every single showing, I think, right? So Yeah. And and then it became bigger than that. Now we're not just doing it monthly, we're doing it weekly or we're doing it in different cities and different countries. They went on tour with it, you know? So it is like Dave said, it's an event. Yes, it is. And it built up that, I mean, starting with those midnight showings in 2004, it became a huge thing in LA and especially among like the, the comedy scene in LA, people were going to see it there. And then, you know, word spreads to other cities and it becomes this, this word of mouth phenomenon. And I think it was really in 2008, when Entertainment Weekly ran a big feature on it, that it got to this larger mainstream audience. I think that was probably the first time I had ever heard of it. But that billboard also that Tommy was so paid for in L.A. that stayed up for like five years. And Jason, I know you lived in L.A. I don't know. if Was it around this time or uh, do you uh, remember that billboard at all? I don't remember the billboard. He did keep it up for five years. The total cost of that over five years is three hundred thousand dollars. Which apparently is no big deal for for Tommy Tommy Wiseau. Don't Um, worry about it. Don't worry about it. (laughs) This is a movie that, because of its uh, unique release pattern, it was uh, tough to find reviews, any reviews that would actually have come out like initially and get a sort of untainted response to this just as a movie. And there probably are more than I was able to find. I spent a while looking, and 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 this is the best kind of that I came up with. 
The only review that I could find from the actual initial run was from Variety in July 2003. Um, and Variety is, is a reliable source of reviewing every obscure nothing if it is released in one theater. So Scott Foundis in Variety said, The Room marks the writing, directing, acting debut of Tommy Wiseau, who's not just one of the most unusual looking and sounding with an unidentifiable Eastern European accent leading men ever to grace the screen, but a narcissist nonpareil whose movie makes Vincent Gallo's The Brown Bunny seem the apotheosis of cinematic self-restraint. Given audience reaction at the screening attended, Pick may be something of a first, a movie that prompts most of its viewers to ask for their money back before even 30 minutes have passed. And it's funny to imagine Scott Foundis going to see this movie at a time when presumably the only people seeing it are people who actually don't know what it is, which is not really something that happened afterwards. And, and walking out, you know, walking into this movie and thinking like, I'm going to see this drama and 30 minutes in being like, oh my God, this is the worst thing ever. I want my money back rather than this is the worst thing ever. How much fun am I having watching it? So that's the best I could find is, is sort of like tabula rasa response to the room well kudos to you for finding that josh it wasn't um, that hard then i take it back but i do know the theater did put up a sign that said no refund if you see the room because they were getting so many requests for it right and that again is is something that happened at the time but certainly by 2004 when they're doing those midnight showings Nobody's asking for a refund yeah, because everyone and, knows what they're getting. Right. And I wonder, had we seen this, like, when it first came out, would we have just been like, what the F is this? And then just been like, no, I don't want to watch this. Like, you know, I'm trying to think, is there any other thing I can compare this to in the history of every movie <laughs> I've ever seen? And I'm not sure I have it, Josh. I'll have a little insight into that when we get to our first time seeing it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know Dave has a great story on that front, but... Um, but I mean, Jason, my feeling on this, and, and I feel like you, because you and I, all three of us have been to a lot of film festivals, and as much as The Room is in a lot of ways unique, and the experience of watching it feels like a unique experience, I have seen so many movies that are like this in the sense that they are very, very bad. They are made clearly by incompetent people who have full conviction in their own brilliance. Like... I feel like I've seen three of those at, at film festivals that I've been, you know, at each film festival I've been to here in these like small film festivals here in Vegas. So it's not entirely unique. But it is because why do I like this so much and why does everybody like it so much? That's the right. thing is, you know, it is because you're right. We've seen stuff that you can't process, but you're like, man, what what a waste, you know? And this is, you can't process it, and yet you keep wanting to watch it. <laughs> I, I mean, mean, in a group, in a group, Josh. Yeah, I don't. Now, you wouldn't, because you hate fun. But the rest of us, Josh, <laughs> like fun. This is a great midnight fun time thing to do. Yeah, I'm sure it is. But at the same time, I feel like the bad, the, like, the unique badness of this movie has maybe been overstated. That I have experience this kind of badness in other instances and with movies that that I have forgotten about because nobody cared about them and they didn't go on to have this kind of sensation. Well, but Josh, were... I have a challenge for you then. When we go yes. do our epilogue episode, um, maybe you can make a list of uh, one or two other movies that you felt like compared to this, okay? Right. Well, there's certainly other movies that we'll talk about maybe in the legacy that have garnered the, uh, like a following on this level. But in terms of movies that don't have a following, I mean, I'll have to look. But, but I think, again, that's my point is that I don't remember what those movies are because they aren't worth remembering. And, and I think in a lot of ways, The Room is also like that. But We'll, we'll table that for the moment. But it's you're completely wrong because it's so worth remembering that it spawned its own cottage industry. Right. It clearly is that way for other people. I just I'm saying from my perspective, this movie is not all that different from those other movies that I can't think of because I've forgotten about. them. Yeah. So the rest of the reviews I found were, were sort of as the movie went out into the wider world. And Jason, as you're saying, it, it went from these weekly midnight showings in L.A., to sort of spreading to other cities and especially cities where there was this strong kind of hipster, ironic appreciation audience for it. So of course it went to Portland. Um, 
<laughs> so in 2009, um, as this movie, and again, I think because of that late 2008 Entertainment Weekly article, it really allowed the movie to spread to a lot of new places. Uh, in 2009, Mark Mohan in The Oregonian in Portland said, if you're an aspiring filmmaker, one with a bucket full of ideas drawn from your life experiences, who's contemplating a raft of credit card debt in order to try your artistic luck, then do not see the room. Tommy Wiseau's film oozes sincerity, which is then slathered in a thick coating of oblivious narcissism and sadly serves as an example that not everyone should follow their bliss. It's the emotional earnestness that places the room squarely within Susan Sontag's famous definition of pure camp. And I think that is an important thing, is that as much as Tommy Wiseau kind of backtracked later and claimed that he was making a comedy or he's being ironic or whatever, the reason this movie is fascinating is because he's 100% honest about his artistic vision. Yep. Agreed. Absolutely. I do think that that's, that's so right. And I think it's such a fine line and such a hard thing to tell when watching, like you were saying earlier, Josh, like some of these other bad movies that you see at film festivals. I certainly have sat through a lot of them as well. And they are completely forgettable. And even if you laugh a few times throughout at, at the, you know, just awfulness of them, uh, they don't really leave any kind of mark, but there's something about the earnestness of the room that I think is a big part of these. It's kind of a secret recipe, but whatever is in there, that's a big part of it. Yeah, it feels like you're getting a glimpse into Tommy Wiseau's soul, into his tortured <laughs> yeah. psyche, and not just a bad movie, but a movie yeah. that really represents something primal about this person. So I will <laughs> yeah. say that, you know, that is something that this movie has, and that I think a lot of movies that have risen, not maybe to the level of the room because nothing is at that level, but have risen close to that level. That is something that those movies have in common. Yeah. Yeah. Jason, do you want to just do a Tommy impression here for a second? Because you haven't in a little while. <laughs> no, no, I'm good. But I think what, okay. um, what you also have to add to that is, I mean, it would make sense to do the impression here because of, what you have to add to that equation is him, right? If he was just yeah. your average American Joe Blow, you wouldn't be. Which he is. Right. He's <laughs> like, from New Orleans. He would subject to being characterized yeah. as anything other than that. He's uh, he's from New Orleans. He's a businessman, you know, all those things, right? But like you wouldn't be you wouldn't be as fascinated by him if if it was that. But like there is something very American dream about him, pie in the sky, right? And that yeah. is something you attach yourself to as it goes down in a blaze of glory. Yeah, I mean, this is, especially because he's, despite what he says, he is not American. It's a weird, like, immigrant. He came to America and he pulled himself up by his bootstraps and he did it all himself and he made his movie and he became a star. You know, what, what's more American than that? Murdering somebody at the end of it. <laughs> that too, yes. Which, you know. There's time. There's time, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so finally, uh, for the, the UK premiere of this movie, in 2009, uh, Tim Walker in The Independent said, with his spinal tap hair, unidentified East European accent, and eerie dead-eyed chuckle, Tommy Wiseau turns in a monstrously unconvincing performance as Johnny, supposedly the greatest guy in San Francisco. Johnny's life is turned upside down when he fails to get a promotion, then discovers that his fiancée Lisa has been bonking his best friend. The script sounds like it came straight from the Sunset Beach slush pile. Subplots about drugs and cancer disappear, unresolved without warning. The audio syncing is rough as sandpaper. The continuity is non-existent. And of the three utterly unnecessary softcore sex scenes set to ear-melting R&B within the first half hour, two feature Wiseau's bare backside bobbing up and down like Duncan Goodhue and Yule Brynner racing each other at breaststroke. And I feel like it's a very British sentence there. Yeah. <laughs> Here's two things I want to know, Josh. Yeah. 2009 British premiere. So this movie that died in 2003 is now having its premiere uh, across the pond, shall we say, in 2009. Yes. Two, I know there's so much written about his ass. But it's no better or worse than so many other asses we've seen in ass shots and ass scenes. Like, I don't understand the obsession with his ass, to be honest. 
you know, because I do understand the obsession that it looks like he's having sex with her hip. Like, yes, it looks like I, I don't know what he's trying to, to have sex with, but it's not a vagina, you know, <laughs> and, and it's nowhere that you would you would aim to have sex with. So that I can understand. But but the ass is just an ass, you know. Yeah, I feel like if we're going to talk about Tommy Wiseau's physique, far more jarring than his ass are like his pecs and his abs. And I thought of when I was watching the movie this time, I remembered, you know, we talked about UHF in a previous episode and the the Rambo fantasy sequence in that where yeah. Weird Al has his shirt off and he's wearing this really fake looking prosthetic to look like the Rambo muscles. That's what Tommy Wiseau's chest looks like to me. Yes. I much prefer just the wardrobe in general, how he'd have on like khakis and a suit, you know, like uh, like the top half was all business and the bottom half was like he was the grip on the movie or something like that, you know. So, but I don't know, uh, Dave, you, you uh, you're a big fan of Tommy Wiseau's ass. Let's hear about it. Yeah, I, I think it's a uh, very uh, unique ass, if if nothing else. Yeah, I mean, I think weirdly enough, because, you know, we, we all. Uh, ended up watching The Disaster Artist, the film about the making of The Room that James Franco directed. And in the scenes in The Disaster Artist where James Franco as Tommy Wiseau is showing his ass, I feel like you can tell that James Franco's ass is not at the bizarre level of Tommy Wiseau's ass. Maybe, you know, I still have the Dave's DVD in my house. Maybe I will have to rewatch just to look <laughs> just, at the angles. Just and the, the ass scene. The shape yeah. of the ass here. Maybe, uh, maybe I'm just desensitized to it, you know, maybe had a ball or two gotten into the shot, you know, some scrotum or something. It would have really had more of an effect on me, but mm -hmm. just the butt. It is. It is. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's the whole, it's the cumulative effect of everything in those scenes. It's, it's the ass, it's the abs, it's the, the like horrifically pale skin that Tommy Wiseau has. It's the horrible music, as that review mentioned. It's so bad, that music. Yeah, it really is. It's the <laughs> length of time. All of those scenes go on for the full length of each of those horrible songs. Yeah, which I love. And, and you yeah. know, the, the flowers and the candles and, and uh, Juliet Danielle's also awful performance as Lisa, which, you know, uh, you, we can at least partially uh, write off to her, uh, no doubt, extreme discomfort in reality in, in being in that scene, which is not, you know, she's not to blame. But all of it adds up, and I just feel like the ass is like the cherry on top. I don't know that <laughs> All right. All right. Yeah. We're so in We're in it now. We are indeed. Um, so, Jason, I, I think the first time you saw this movie was when you and I watched it together before the disaster. Yeah, I had known about it for a long time. But, it, you know, Vegas is not really like um, a late night or a midnight movie screening thing like College Town stuff. I don't really do those events. So I never really was I never really found a screening that was accessible until the disaster artist came out and they played this as kind of like a promotional vehicle ahead of time. And I'm so glad I saw it the way that we did because it was a pretty full theater and it did have a lot of fans of the room. So I got the experience uh, in whatever, 2017, probably as close to what it should be at that point in time, I think. Yeah. And one of, one of the weird things about that screening was that I feel like because it was a promotional thing and it was it was offered for free. I feel like half of that screening maybe was people who were fans of the room who were excited to see it in a theater because as you say, Jason, we hadn't had that here in Las Vegas. And the other half was just people who went to see a free movie and didn't know what they were getting into. <laughs> and so it was a very weird mix of the like people who knew the lines to yell out and stuff and people probably who were just like, where am I and why am I here? And so it was, it was a fun, weird experience. Yeah, that. that made it a real... Uh piece of like i remember in college i took cultural anthropology and you could do a report on an event like this would have been a perfect event to do a, a report on for cultural anthropology but josh what about you when was the first time you saw it well see because that time that you and i saw it together there that was my second time seeing it and the first time i saw it was probably the wrong way to see it because i had written an article in i i think it was 2009 uh for las vegas weekly and the concept was 
I would get readers and people to kind of tell me movies that they wanted me to watch and write about. So someone, and I was trying to remember who it was, because I think it was maybe one of my colleagues or coworkers at the time, but I can't remember for sure. Someone had suggested the room for me. And I think I ended up borrowing the DVD from this person who, again, I don't quite remember who it was. So the first time I watched this movie was at home by myself. And that's not the right way to do it. And I was familiar with, I think I had read the Entertainment Weekly article and I knew that it existed as this cult thing. Um, but I, that was, I had to watch it for this article. And so I watched it at home and it just didn't, I think that maybe contributes to my sense of this as watching it in that context. I was like, this is just another bad movie. I've seen so many bad movies. Like what is the big deal here? And that kind of carried over. So then I saw it again with you, Jason, you know, all those years later, and that was a better way to do it. But, um, yeah, this is not, I mean, obviously right now is a weird time for going to theaters or whatever, but it's not a movie to just watch alone in your living room, which is of course what I did again. Which we all did this time. Yes. But, yeah. but no, I agree. Like Josh, I've never seen Rocky Horror Picture. And part of the reason is because I'm not going to go sit when they play it on TV. I want to go experience it in, you know, the time warp, shall we say, you know, so um, I'm glad I saw the room in the theater with people. And I want to hear Dave's story about uh, this. Yeah, Dave has one of the best room experiences of all. Yeah, I saw it July 2nd, 2004. It was the fourth screening outside of L.A. Um, here in Las Vegas at the Palms. I believe it was called the New York Film Festival, but I'm not sure about that. I tried looking it up to see if that is, in fact, what it was called. I couldn't find any reference to it being a thing. But yeah, me and Q were there, Q from Bird Road. And uh, we had seen a couple of, I think, documentaries maybe. And we were deciding whether we were going to watch one more thing uh, or, or just head out and head to the bar or whatever. And Tommy Wiseau himself walked up to us and said, hey, guys, you come see my movie now. And we were like, uh, okay, uh, what's your movie? And he's like, just come watch, just come watch. And I'm like, okay, cool. Well, hey, by the way, I'm, I'm a composer because, of course, I was there trying to, you know, mingle and meet people and get gigs. And he goes, oh, oh music, yeah. I spent $2 million on the music for this movie. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, that's awesome. Well, here's my card. And, uh, and so, that, you know, we walked into the theater with him and it had already started. It was just, uh, the credits were just ending. And it was still like just dead silence for the first, you know, few minutes of the movie until that first sex scene, which is about five minutes in. And you could already start hearing like some like giggling in the crowd and stuff like that. But I remember specifically, it's right after that first sex scene, he leans over and he says, did you like last night? And she's like, yeah. And he goes, ha, 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 ha. That's when the theater just exploded, like, you know, and it was just nonstop from then forward. And you know, we obviously had not heard of the movie yet at this point. It was not, you know, as far as I know, like a thing, I'm sure like in LA it was, but it, I don't think it had reached anywhere else. And we were just, we couldn't believe it, how funny it was. And Q used to punch me when things were particularly funny. He was beating the shit out of me during the whole screening. And he was like, he was like, dude, that guy from outside is right over there. And all these people are laughing at this movie. Like this is insane. And, but he clearly had already caught on Tommy and was already starting to promote it this way because he was out in the lobby after he was calling it a dark comedy at, at that point already. And he was giving out t-shirts and stuff like that. So, I mean, I think Tommy picked up pretty quickly on how to uh, course correct, I guess. So Dave, one question, you knew nothing going in, but you were able to pick up on the idea that it was funny or like, you know, I, I, it was just weird and bad for the, those first like few minutes, like I said, but once, once like everyone else started laughing, it like, it was almost like permission to just start laughing out loud yeah. at this thing, you know? And so the other people who were there, do you think that was an audience of people who had heard about it from L.A. and decided to come see it at this random film festival here in Vegas? I've always wondered about that because, like you said, like Las Vegas is not really like a hipster type town that kind of like is dialed into those kind of things. Like I would assume it was mostly just like local film people who, you know, wouldn't really know that. And I, I wish I knew if. I mean, it's possible that some plants like actually came with Tommy. I mean, he is he has proved himself to be somewhat shrewd when it comes to the business of this whole project. Yeah, I was going to say, Josh, like 
even though we all know that he did this all in earnest, like you got to give him credit to be able to pivot and be like, well, you know, people are responding to it in some way. So I'm just going to roll with that. And it works. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's definitely I mean, you have to wonder if somewhere in his soul, he's still hurt that people are oh, laughing yeah. at his emotional pain. But at least on the outside, he's been able to uh, turn that to his advantage. So and I'm trying to remember, I'm I'm sure people the word definitely spread here to some degree. And Jason, I, I know, you know, you and I were friends with with Roger Tinch, who worked at the Cine Vegas Film Festival here. And I remember him trying to get a screening going in Vegas. But I don't know if that was all the way back in 2004. It was probably later than that. I don't know, man. I, I think like you said, Josh, I didn't really know about it till it kind of maybe hit like a national publication like EW or something like that. So. Right. Yeah, I think that was probably when I heard of it as well. And that but I wish I saw it the way Dave saw it the first time. That's a cool story. It's what a totally experience. pure experience, you know, yeah. which, which no one is really having anymore. It's like going to the opening night of Star Wars or something. Like, how can you possibly even recreate that? It's a, it, you can't. Right. So. Well, we, you know, in a recent episode, we talked about seeing Lord of the Rings in the theaters when it first came out. So we've had a few of those in our lifetime, you know. That's true. That's true. You know, and you never really know. I'm sure, Dave, when you were walking in, you didn't think, oh, I'm about to witness a cultural phenomenon. <laughs> No, not at all. So, uh, Jason, as as you've said, like we could go on and on about there's there's so, so much been documented about the insanity yeah. of this movie. But is there any other specific background info you want to mention? He's the first filmmaker to shoot it on both 35 millimeter and HD at the same time by setting up a rig, you know, to do both, even though it didn't make any sense to do that, you know. And in the end, they only used the 35 millimeter stuff. I mean, there, like you said, we could go on and on. So those were just two fun ones, Josh. Or yeah. should I call you Chicken Josh? Cheep, 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 cheep. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we'll get more of Jason's Tommy Wiseau impression when we come back and talk our general thoughts on The Room. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 2003, we are talking about our future cult classic pick, The Room. And in a way, it's like, what do you even say about The Room? Like, what, what, what insights do we have about this thing? It's a horrible movie, but a wonderful experience. That's the best way I can sum it. Yeah. Uh, do you have a favorite moment or a favorite line, Jason? Well, I did the one in the beginning, you know. Yes. Obviously, I think the most famous one is, you're tearing me apart, Lisa! <laughs> but I think the most um, anachronistic thing in there is when Mark tells him the story about how the woman got beaten up and ended in the hospital. He just goes, ha, what a story, Mark. <laughs> you know, like, just so wild that that's how you would react, that laugh there. And I love, you know, like all the scenes that, you know, we've already said it like he th there's a thing in screenwriting called the rule of the party guest, right? Where you enter a scene as late as possible and leave as early as possible. So you're just giving what's necessary. And he does the exact opposite of that, right? Like, every, you know, every scene. Oh, hi, Mark. Oh, hi, Lisa. You know, like he enters at the beginning and then when a scene's over, it just keeps going. And then it ends with like a. Don't worry about it, you know, or something like that. So it none of it makes any sense. And God bless it for that, Josh. Yeah, I, I, I said this on Letterboxd, but I think all of those those things that you were just saying point to, you know, there have been a lot of like social media memes or, or, or posts that go around and talk about the idea that in movies, you know, characters never say goodbye at right, the end of phone right. conversations, or they just show up at each other's houses and start talking. And people will complain that this is unnatural. This is not how people really behave. And that's true. But I feel like this movie, where every scene starts with the characters saying hi to each other and ends with them saying bye to each other, proves that you don't want that in a movie because it's horrible. It's so, it's just like uh, a little, um, like a jab to the nose each time. Like, what? What are you doing, right? <laughs> but it's not just that stuff. It's the other stuff, too. Like, the mom, when she's like, I got the test results back. I definitely have breast cancer. Like, the fact that it's definitely, like, you know, 
No more questions about it, hun, okay? I know you thought there might be some possibilities, but nope, it is definitely breast cancer. And then, of course, you know, the disaster artist does a great job of, like, pointing these things out and then pointing out how they never come back, you know? Like, I think that's one of the strengths of the movie. Like, that that one's funny. And, of course, Denny's drug dealer problem that's just... Chris R. Yeah, Chris yeah. R. <laughs> Can I just call him Chris? <laughs> so. Um, and then Denny, who you got to say, the first time we see him, I guess he's in college, but you don't know. He could be in high school, right? And he basically wants to three-way them, you know? And you're <laughs> like, what? This is like within eight minutes of the scene in the, the, the movie, and they might three-way with this kid? Like, what is happening in this So the whole thing, Josh, is my answer to you. Do I have any favorites? <laughs> the whole thing. That so, that is a good even a good even like the stuff by the other characters, like we said, like when Lisa tells her mom, like, I don't love Tommy. I don't want to marry him. He hit me and I'm not in love with him anymore. She doesn't give a fuck that he that she hit. That, oh, someone hit my daughter. Well, you should leave. She's just like, well, he's stable and he loves you and you should marry him. Like, it's just like she just they just breeze over all the things you shouldn't breeze over. It's. It's wonderful that way. Yeah, because he supports you with his job at bank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, John, how's the bank? Oh, how's your sex life? <laughs> like, that's his response. I love that. I mean, even though Tommy was always obviously some sort of self-made man and he did make his money somehow, he writes all that stuff about Johnny's job as if he, like, doesn't understand the concept of jobs. Yeah. Like, that he's never, he's never had a job, you right. know? Um, They're already using my ideas and making money <laughs> off me. Yeah. One thing that I find especially amusing is is the the random characters who show up because actors quit. And right. uh, so we had like Peter, the psychologist character. Who's who made apparently... sense for when he was in it. <laughs> and then that actor left. And yeah. so they just throw in some other guy. And they don't even try to pretend Steve. that like this is still Peter. It's yeah. just like some other random guy who's like, I have an important insight about Johnny and Lisa's relationship. And you're like, who is this person? Yeah, you're going to tear our talking? friends apart. Thanks, Stephen, <laughs> who was never in the movie until we got to this big party. Um, you're right. I read something about Peter about like there's a scene and like he wanted to stop it. But Tommy was so wouldn't let him, even though he got like a concussion during the scene or something like that. But also... They play football about as well as you, Josh. <laughs> you know, they are not, and not just that. They set up football in like a way of like, hey, let's stand two feet apart from each other and throw the ball lightly underhand to one another. I will say, to my credit, at least I understand that that's not the way that you're supposed to play football. <laughs> Good job. Good job, buddy. Um, we've talked a lot about the fun stuff. Dave, what do you want to talk about? Uh, I'll just give a couple other moments you guys gave a bunch of really great ones but uh i i love there's a moment where uh mark and lisa are together and he goes i mean the candles the music the sexy dress what's going on here and in their reality there's no music um so i've just always loved that line as a composer i thought that was that was amazing also of course i i can't let this conversation end without mentioning the high doggy scene yeah, uh, which is just in incredible. That whole scene is like a masterclass in bad movie making from the stuff you guys were talking about, the seeing the the hellos and the goodbyes, which feels so unnatural to just the fact that she doesn't recognize him. Like, which who doesn't recognize a guy that looks like that to talking to the dog before he leaves? Every single thing about that scene is just so bad. Well, it's not incredible. just that. She doesn't recognize him, but then she says, you're my favorite customer. Yeah. <laughs> and that whole scene, you, you know, knowing some about how they, they made this movie, you realize that, you know, they, they, must, they, they like built sets for this stuff and they traveled to San Francisco for exteriors. And there's literally nothing about that scene that adds to the movie at all. So, right. they, you know, Johnny could easily have just walked in the next scene with flowers and we would understand he went to a florist and bought those flowers. Like, we don't need this scene for any reason. And that, that clerk character who apparently loves him yet can't recognize him is never in the movie again. Just the idea that Tommy Wiseau is like, no, we must put our resources towards shooting this scene to show Johnny going in and buying flowers and saying hi to a doggy is, is 
mind-blowing. Really. Well, I mean, you know, like we said, we watched the disaster artists and they showed, you know, a good example of like, they had real locations that they could have just shot on, but he made them build sets. And then the horrible green screening, you know, on the rooftop, that that's pretty great too. Yes. And uh, Jason, in a recent episode, you lamented your uh, lost opportunity to use the word defenestrate. But we are close <laughs> with yeah. the scene with uh, between Mark and Peter. It's not quite it because he's not throwing, he's not pushing him out a window. He's just uh, off the top of the, the balcony there or the rooftop there. But I don't know if that's the scene where uh, the actor who plays Peter was injured. But Mark really roughs him up there and like threatens to throw him off the side of the building. But Josh, you're missing the important point of that. Even though he almost murdered him, once he said sorry, everything was cool. Yes. <laughs> ah, See, whatever. Which makes you think that maybe if Mark and Lisa had gone to Johnny and said, you know what, we had an affair behind your back, but we're sorry, he would have been like, ah, ha, 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 and, uh, right. you know, said, oh, Mark, you're my best friend, which of Human course. Human behavior. Is, yeah. So here's a question for you guys uh, Is there anything this movie does purposefully good? Like legitimately good or yeah. entertaining? Good. Just actually good. No, I don't think so, Jason. No. Um, I saw some good exterior shots of San Francisco. <laughs> okay. I mean, Greg yeah, Sestero's not horrible, right? He's not horrible in some of those scenes. But. Yeah, I mean, all of these actors are, I mean, they're all bad, but you can, unlike Tommy, who knows, knows what he's doing, I guess. I mean, these are people who are... They're not experienced actors for the most part. They're they're doing what they can given this insane script and the insane direction and all of that. And you can imagine that if they didn't end up in the room, they could have been perfectly, you know, competent actors in small parts in other things. Or found a career in softcore porn. So, <laughs> or that. But way. Josh, speaking of softcore porn, what about the friends who yes. come over and they're like, they just show up and they're like, I guess we'll fuck, <laughs> you know, like Mike and uh, whatever her name is. Like they show up to the apartment, they come in and they're like, oh, well, Tommy and Lisa are in here. So I guess we'll bang on the couch or something like that. And it seems like that's like the thing that they do, that that's their place to go to have sex. And there's never I mean, theoretically, they could have said, well, maybe they live with their parents or I don't know. You know, the age of all the characters in this movie is very uh, fluid. But he could have said something about how this is the only time we get privacy or whatever, but they, they never they no. never say any of that. There's no explanation. And also they're really grossly eating chocolates as they do it <laughs> in a very not sexy way. Mike has some great facial expressions. Well, Josh, as someone who has both eaten chocolate and had sex at your apartment, I really can't comment. <laughs> not in my current place, thankfully. No, no. But speaking of which, Josh... Um, I was thinking we should make our own list of ex-girlfriends of one another that we would have ruined our friendship cheating on with. Like, which of your exes would I have slept with? And which of my exes would you have slept with? Let's go. You start, Josh. Wow. This is definitely <laughs> one of the worst things you've ever said on this podcast. <laughs> Thank you, so it really fits with the theme of this whole episode, <laughs> yeah. I think. Oh, so. yeah. Um, well, Dave, I want to go back to your question. Like, as a fan of this movie and who's, who's seen it, what, like 25 times or something, I think you had said? Probably. I, I've seen it at least six times in the theater. Um, and I would say another 10, 15 at home, at least. With, yeah. Have you watched it alone? Other than the other day for this, uh, maybe one other time alone, yeah. But do you think there's anything that's like legitimately well done in this film? No, no. Okay. I, I I will say the score has kind of grown no, on me over get the years. Out of here, it, it, it's Stop. no, it it's terrible, but like it it I don't know. It makes me laugh, like the way that it like accents the comedy scenes. It makes me laugh. So I mean. I, I'm sure that uh, Milos, whatever his name is, didn't know he was scoring a comedy, but I think it uh, it accents the comedy. No, work. no, Dave, you're disqualified. Josh, there <laughs> was one shot. I think it was when uh, Tommy and Mark were like running in the park and we're going to play football. And Tommy's wearing biker gloves because, you know, that's what you do when you play football. But they do a nice pan. I was like, hey, that's a legitimate pan. Or they like follow them running and the shot goes wider in a pan. And I was like, all right. <laughs> All right, you did that. So. You did it. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. I'm with you, Jason, on like the opening shots of San Francisco. It looks like a sort of like an ad for San Francisco or something, but like a 
good one. You know, like you would legitimately believe that, hey, here we're highlighting the, the, the scenery that you can find if you come visit beautiful San Francisco. So there is that and Tommy riding on the, uh, the trolley car because, you know, that's, that's what, what you do. That's what you do when you live in San Francisco. And work at bank. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine him working at like one of those. Dave, you saw Cherry. Right, the recent uh, yeah, movie yeah. where the whole one of the running bits in that is that every bank that the character robs is named something like, you know, swindling and corporated or something like that oh, is a horrible, heavy handed <laughs> commentary. But I imagine Tommy Wiseau working at one of those fake banks from the movie <laughs> yeah. Cherry. Josh, did you notice how big Mark's tuxedo was on him for no reason? Like it was very ill fitting. I mean, the whole tuxedo scene and like I was <laughs> confused. Because, like, in theory, there could be a plot reason, right? They spend all this time talking about how Johnny and Lisa are about to get married, right? It's a huge thing. Well, you're going to get married next, but she's your future wife. And so when they all show up in tuxes, I was like, oh, it must be the wedding day because they're all wearing tuxes. But it is is it it's a not. fitting? It's, I'm confused. It, yeah, they don't mention that at all. They're just like, hey, it's tux day, essentially. You know, we're all wearing tuxes and let's go play football in our tuxes, and then Peter's going to fall down and trip, and then scene over. So. One, thing, one thing that, you know, you have to suspend so much disbelief in this movie, but one thing that I thought, like, didn't work for me, even with suspending all possible disbelief, was Mark and Lisa at the, you know, whatever, the wedding engagement party, or his birthday party, right? Yeah. And, like, She's like, everyone go outside. And then she's like, I sent them outside. So now we can hook up. And then later they're like, what? Like no one would come in or later they're dancing and basically almost hooking up. It's like that one, even for fans has to be like, come on, bro. You know, like (laughs) give us a little more. Yeah. I mean, I think it all just fits in with the idea that Tommy Wiseau doesn't understand human behavior. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And he thinks that that's what people would do in those circumstances. Yeah, okay. I, I can't, I mean, and maybe maybe you're onto something because, as you know, one of the subplots he wanted at one point was that the Johnny character was to be revealed as a vampire. Yeah, and, and his car was going to fly, I think, or something Yeah, like much like uh, the end of Repo Man. Yes! There you go. Much like there our previous go. cult classic pick, Repo Man. Yeah, so like it flies through the San Francisco skyline and... You know, maybe Emilio Estefes gets in and they're off on the next adventure or something. Why not? This movie makes about as much sense as Repo Man. So. No, Repo Man made way more sense, Josh. Come on. I, yeah, or Repo Man, the, the parts of it that didn't make sense, like you knew why. You know, you could sense the deliberate approach that yeah. was going on there. In I, I also like, you know, first of all, Lisa is a really horrible human being, you know, <laughs> and... He writes her that way. We know that. Yeah, you know? I mean, he, Lisa's horrible because Tommy Wiseau, like, hates women, clearly. Right. Yes, exactly. Or at least one woman that uh, he's based Lisa on, right? Yes. And, and I, her mother. Yeah. But what about in the third <laughs> act where she's like, and we're having a bit, you know, hey, we're expecting, you know, it's like, well, I just made that up to make things interesting. I'm like, what? Like, again, it just goes so just off the rails and it's already off the rails. So I don't know, man. But uh, yeah, I, I think that almost covers most of it for me. Dave, you, you talk. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would just say uh, I, that, that screenplay, I, I'm, I've never actually read it. Jason, you sent it to us. Uh, I, I want to read it because it must be um, filled with little fun surprises, I'd imagine. Yeah, I wanted us to read this scene with Lisa and Claudette because it was so repetitive of like, I'm not feeling good today. Why not? I don't think I want to get married. Why not? I don't love him anymore. Why not? Tell me why. <laughs> you know, and then it just keeps going and going like that. Uh, you know, he, you know, he's boring. And then she has a long paragraph and he goes, that's why he's boring. You know, and it just keeps going. Um, and then she's just like, but I don't mind living with him. You know, it's it's very weird, Josh. That it is very weird. And I wonder, I mean, there's 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 reports that there's a longer, worse version of that script that that the actors had to kind of help shape into what we saw. 
And also that Tommy Wiseau wrote a 500-page novel yeah, of The Room. Does that exist? Dave, do you know? Do people read that? I am not sure that it actually exists in any way to find it. I know he's also written a uh, musical adaptation, I believe. But this uh, started but I don't think it's ever play. happened. It was a play Yeah, it, it was a possibly a play. I think he was probably writing both at the same time, knowing him. But I mean, a lot of these, like, I feel like also anything that's reported about this movie, you can't verify. So you sure. don't really know yeah. what's true. Well, one thing, Josh, I was wondering if you could verify is uh, I had read that they threw in references in Veronica Mars to this as much as possible. Do you remember any of that as a fan of Veronica Mars? I don't. But I mean, A, I, it's been a long time since I watched those original Veronica Mars episodes. And B, I think at the time that I was watching them, I probably didn't know what the room was. <laughs> so, you know, those references would have been completely lost on me. <laughs> what a story, Josh. <laughs> I think that's a good moment for us to stop and and rate the room, I guess. Yeah. Such a weird even a hard thing. Time. I was thinking about that. How do we rate it? Because like this is like it's it's almost like, you know, when you go to the carnival and you hit the mallet to see how strong you are and it like makes the machine explode and go, whirr, whirr, whirr. Like it doesn't <laughs> compute, right? So like I don't know how to rate it as a movie. Like, what are we rating it out of, Josh? I mean, five uh, pictures of spoons, maybe? That's a big... Yeah, you know, that's, sure. a, that's a good movie. one. Sure, yeah. we can do... So, like, as a movie, it gets maybe a half a picture of a spoon because, like, it's not... Because it's got credits on both sides, so I have to <laughs> I have to consider it as a movie, right? You know? As a movie, it gets that, but, like, as an experience, it's at least a four four spoon experience. And if you give it five, like Dave's about to do, I'm with that. I'm cool. So, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I would give it like, I give it a one out of five rating on, on letterbox. And I think that incorporates all aspects of it. Like the, the, <laughs> the element of entertainment that I get from watching this movie is elevates it like half a star above that half star that you just gave it, Jason, because I just don't find it that entertaining and, and not, really that much more so than all of those other bad movies that I've mentioned that I've forgotten the second that I left the theater at a film festival. So, well, we disagree with you on that. Yeah, I know. I know. And here's the question. Did you find it entertaining to talk about? Yeah, well, I mean, but we so <laughs> I also found it entertaining to talk about. I know who killed me, you know, in, in, yeah. in episodes. It's Dave. It's always entertaining for us to talk about movies here on Awesome Movie Year. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and of course I give it five stars just across the board. So yeah, I mean, do you really? Is this a really a five star experience for you? Still, it, it's truly an impossible thing for me to to quantify. I mean, this is a, a really difficult movie to rate because yeah, it, it's terrible. It's completely horribly terrible, but it's so much fun. I'm with Dave, man, and I don't like being with Dave. Um, but yeah, <laughs> no, that's I, I mean, I have a lot of fun. You know, watching it alone, I had some fun, but like, I just made me want to watch it with other people again. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and you guys are obviously in the majority of the people who, if you, if you watch this, I don't, I feel like nobody who deliberately watches this movie is outside of that sort of perspective. You know, mm -hmm. nobody is like, oh, what am I going to watch? Oh, this drama about infidelity. Mm -hmm. Let's check that out. You know, you don't come to the room unless you know what you're going to get out of it. And so I think that's, you know, the majority of the, the perspective of people. So, yeah, there you go. We'll uh, come back in a minute then and talk about the legacy of the room. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 2003, we've been talking about our future cult classic pick, The Room. And I mean, obviously, the main legacy of this film is the just massive cult following that it built up in those years after it was first released. And that still exists, although I feel like maybe the, the, the intensity of that has, has cooled down and maybe... It, it reached its apex when The Disaster Artist came out, the film that James Franco made about the making of The Room, and that it was a fully mainstream thing at that point, and now it's maybe a little played out. I don't know. Dave, as part of the fan base, how do you feel about that? I feel like it's still pretty much going strong. And, uh, you know, of course, I'm sure we'll talk about the fact that uh, Greg Sestero and, and Tommy Wiseau made two back-to-back -back movies, Best Friends slash Fiends, part one and two. Uh, just a couple of years ago, and those screenings were 
fairly packed uh, when I went to them, but like around the screenings, there was the room anniversary screenings and people were still there. And that was just a couple of years ago. So I don't know about, you know, over this past couple of years, obviously, like we've been saying, it works best with a crowd and we can't have a crowd over the last year. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, I would love to get back to one of those screenings again sometime. So just to follow up, Josh, maybe it hit that apex, like you said, that book is, uh, I mean, that movie is based on Greg Sestero's book, The Disaster Artist, about his time on the room, right? Making the best, worst movie ever or whatever. And, uh, but I mean, I still, I agree with Dave. I think it's still going. Dave, what about Best for Ains Part 1 and 2? Tell us about those. Yeah, they're very, very strange. And of course they're not, you know, they don't capture that same lightning in a bottle. But I mean, there were plenty of, Funny, weird Tommy moments. Tommy is still Tommy in it. Uh, it's definitely like strangely trying to be a better movie, though. And that obviously doesn't always work out so well. And the fact that they stretched it into two entire movies is, you know, total overkill. But it's interesting. It's very we actually did episodes over on piecing it together. It's very like Lynchian and very uh, a little bit of Coen brothers in there. It's like it's got its sights set very high while at the same time being of the room reunion, which is just such a strange thing to attempt. Well, and I have to wonder about that because the reason people like the room is because it captures this um, entertaining awfulness without yeah. having tried to do that. And so anything that tries to recapture that, I feel yeah. like that's one of the big things with this culture of like, so bad, they're good movies is that there are too many movies that now try to be that. And that's the exact opposite of how you achieve that. So exactly. I wonder, you know, how they kind of balance that in a movie now that they're known for the room. Yeah, I would say they're they're worth seeing if you're a fan of the whole phenomenon. You know, for Josh, definitely not. But Jason, I think it's worth seeing once. Uh, I'll think about it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I know Greg Sestero starred in Dude Bro Party Massacre 3, which is supposed to be very funny. Do you guys know anything about that? I, I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Same and, here. You know, he seems like he's slowly maybe getting to some legitimacy. He was on The Haunting of Bly Manor, the Netflix right. series, mm -hmm. you know, in a completely like serious, normal role. I don't think he wasn't doing a cameo as the guy from the room or something. Yeah. So, you know, maybe he has enough talent in him that, like I was saying before, if he hadn't hooked up with Tommy Wiseau, could be you know, a low level actor who shows up in small parts and stuff because he's, he's fine at that. I've seen him in two lifetime movies already. So nice. there you go. That seems like the exact right place for him. Tommy was so yep. is supposedly putting a movie together called big shark about a shark mm -hmm. that terrorizes new Orleans where he was born and raised <laughs> as you well know. Yes. Mm -hmm. But uh, anyway, yeah, so, I mean, and that would obviously have Greg Sestero in it as well. So, you know. Is that a real movie? Because I feel like Tom, part of the legacy is Tommy Wiseau making all these big claims about things he's going to do that he never does. Dave, do you know if that shark movie is actually happening? As a fan, a longtime fan, I have no fucking idea. Like, <laughs> there's so much mixed info about that project, about whether or not it's real. It's impossible to know. One thing he did do, although not on the level that he claimed that he would do, was his TV series, The Neighbors. That they I kind ended of did up with. that, right? Yeah, it was like five episodes or something, I think. And it, 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 it trickled out over the course of several years. But it was at one point on Hulu. Dave, did you ever watch it? I saw the first episode when it was just on uh, like YouTube, like before there were any other episodes. And I haven't seen like the whole thing since, since that actually became available. And it's pretty bad. I mean, you know, it's it's always a treat to see Tommy pop up in something. But uh, yeah, it, it's awful. So you didn't even bother following through and watching the rest of it, even as much as you love The Room? Yeah, I, I obviously I went out for best friends. But uh, for, for the neighbors, I was like, yeah, one episode. That's I'm fine. Right. Fair enough. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if it's still there, but I know there was a point where, where it was available on Hulu. Because, you know, another thing, especially with The Room, is that Tommy Wiseau has... I mean, that's that's his whole thing, that the ownership of the room is all he's got, really. And so yeah. he's never licensed it to be streamed or rented or purchased digitally at all. You know, if you want to watch this, you either have to pirate it or or watch it on a DVD that you have to buy directly from Tommy Wiseau. So, I mean, in some ways, and, and maybe not surprisingly, given that he did make all this money, he is has uh, got uh, some business acumen, let's say, from his time working yeah. at bank. <laughs> 
an importer <laughs> export or whatever. But Josh, yeah, I mean, what do we know about Roomful of Spoons, the documentary that he was in a lawsuit against forever, and then he lost and basically had to pay them almost like a million dollars. But I don't know where this movie is. I would like to watch it. Yeah, it doesn't appear to be available, but some people have seen it. Dave, have you seen that? Yeah, no, it's not available anywhere. I've always wanted to. I remember when they did like a Kickstarter for it and uh, I watched the, you know, the trailer that they had put together and it seems like they had like most, if not all of the non Tommy and Greg people involved. And I mean, looking that up on Letterboxd, clearly some people have seen it, but I'm not sure exactly how that is. And maybe it's, it was limited once, you know, during the whole process of that lawsuit, they couldn't show it. And maybe now they'll be able to, you know, and the, we've been talking about the disaster artist a lot. And that was, it's again, great. The apex of this breaching the mainstream. And I, I, at the time I saw it the first time I thought it's fun, but it seemed to me to be just too like, remember the room? Hey, Hey, we all like the room. Didn't you also like the room? Um, and but watching it this time again, I thought, you know what? It actually is pretty entertaining on its own. And it's actually a good story about like diluted, you know, the the sort of distortion of reality that is Hollywood and is show business. And, and I think I enjoyed it a little more this time. I think it's really good. And that whole idea of like, remember the room, Josh, like and we all love the room. Those aspects have to be in the disaster artist for the disaster artist to make sense and to have its impact at the end. So. Um, I really like that movie. It's super fun. And um, I think both the Francos are really, really good in that movie. They are good. And, you know, that's a movie that is full of these famous comedy stars in small roles. And in part, of course, because of James Franco and his connections. But I think also just as much because all of those people love the room and would be eager to participate in a project about the room, even if they're only in one scene for three lines. And, and that does make it fun. Yeah. I, can I just add to the disaster artist? If you enjoyed the movie, please go listen to the audiobook because it is so good. It's read by Greg Sestero. And first of all, he does a perfect Tommy impression. And so all of all the lines just sound like Tommy was so. But it, he gets into so many more stories that some of it, I don't understand why it was cut. I mean, obviously, you got to make a movie be like 90 minutes or whatever. But there are so many more great stories that he tells in that book and the audiobook version that really make it worthwhile. Dave, you're our uh, resident video game player here. Did you ever play the Room Tribute? I did. It's awesome. Uh, it's one of the, one of those uh, web-based games. You know, it's not like an official, like on a console type thing, but it is really fun and it is a really well-made, like, like, you know, feels like an old Nintendo game, but with all of the, you know, characters and moments from the room. It's great. Do you play as Johnny? Is that what the your character is or? It's been a while. I played it when it first came out. But yeah, I'm pretty sure you're Johnny in it. And you have menial tasks. You have to wake up every morning and go to bed every night. And you have menial tasks like, you know, getting flowers or doing something <laughs> like that. Yeah. And then when you're not doing stuff, you can explore the room, which, you know, obviously even the title. You know, we know Tommy Wiseau said the room is called that because it can be the place of like the best things happening and the worst things happening. But really, there's no reason for this movie to even be called the room. Q had a theory about that, actually, uh, which I'm just going to share really quickly. Uh, he thinks that he mixed up the titles for the neighbors in the room because <laughs> <laughs> the neighbors takes place in one room where all these people are in this room and uh, the room is about a bunch of neighbors. So interesting point. Um, this of course is part of this larger culture of so bad, they're good movies. And it seemed to kick off this new phase of that, that, you know, this stuff has always been around, whether it's plan nine from outer space or Manos, the hands of fate or Coleman Francis movies, movies that are almost like outsider art. But it seemed like as the room became more popular, more of these movies came to light, whether that's uh Birdemic or uh, something like uh, Miami Connection, or Samurai Cop, or of course us here in Las Vegas, we have Neil Breen, the Tommy Wiseau of Las Vegas, who has made a number of mind-bogglingly terrible movies, including uh, Fateful Findings, which is sort of the biggest uh, one that has the biggest cult following. And I've seen a couple of Neil Breen movies, unfortunately. Um, but I think in all of those movies that gain that following, they have what I was talking about before, where it's not just this is a bad movie, but this is like the pure, unadulterated vision of an insane person. And that 
<laughs> is what makes them work. But I mean, I don't know, Dave, as a fan of The Room, do you have any thoughts on this, this larger culture of bad movies? Yeah, I will say, and this is really probably going to sound strange for you guys, but I'm not really that big of a fan of most so bad they're good kind of movies. Like usually I find them just kind of a chore to watch. Like it's one thing if you're with a crowd. Yeah, that's always fun. But like to actually just watch them with just one or two people, it's kind of like, yeah. One movie that to me, and I, maybe not everybody would consider it so bad, it's good, but one of my favorite recent bad movies that I just love so much is Serenity. Uh, that movie with Anne Hathaway and, and uh, uh, McConaughey. That movie is so funny, unintentionally funny. It's just, I, I, I've watched that like three times now and I laugh through the whole thing. I feel like movies like that are in a different category though, that are these these big Hollywood boondoggles where it's the the hubris of people who have all of this studio backing and they make something right. bad versus something like this or, or those other movies that I, you know, was talking about like Birdemic or, or Neil Breen movies where it's someone who is completely outside any film industry and they just create this vision out of whole cloth. So I've seen, again, for various reasons for writing about it, or uh, I was in like a short uh, documentary film that a local filmmaker here in Vegas made about Samurai Cop. <laughs> and I watched that. And Dave, Samurai Cop 2 features Tommy Wiseau. Right. I know. I've never seen it. I've always wanted to. He's an to. executive on it, too, I think. Yeah. And that's a movie where it has sort of what I was describing, too, where Samurai Cop was this organic, you know, movie that built a cult following because of its badness. And then people who were fans of it as a bad movie decided to make Samurai Cop 2, which is a deliberate recreation of a bad movie. And they get Tommy Wiseau in it. And it's like the bad movie all stars who are in that. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's just, it's not the same. So, right. uh, but yeah, he's, he's in it. So in general, Josh, I agree. This whole idea of so bad, it's good. Like if that's your intention, then you've already missed the target. Yeah. yeah. Are there any of those beyond that besides the room that you like, Jason? No. No. Okay. Fair enough. There's there's one that I've been reading about recently that I think has been a bit of a letterbox sensation called The Misty Green Sky that sounds insane. And at the same time, I'm like, would I really want to spend like 80 minutes watching this thing that that every review on Letterboxd is like I wanted to die after watching this, <laughs> but in a good way. <laughs> hey, uh, Josh, as always, I will. I will say we will do an episode on it. If anyone donates $100 to a charity and can prove that they did it, we will do an episode on it for, for yes. just that people, just those yeah. people. Yeah. Maybe a double feature with that and uh, Killer Nerd starring Toby from American Splendor. Yeah, or Dude Bro Party Massacre 3. That is That movie, I think, is actually supposed to be. It's, yeah. it's a, like a, a legit comedy right? Uh, for whatever that's worth. So... Uh, any last words on the room, uh, Jason, Dave? You're tearing me apart, Josh. <laughs> That's the right last word to have. That's right. So that is the room, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. You can, and after this, why wouldn't you? I'm Jason <laughs> Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com. The Tommy Wiseau of websites. <laughs> hey, also, don't ever go to SpaceJam.com anymore. Shame on you people who changed SpaceJam.com into something new and modern. We don't like that. We don't want any part of it. We are at, uh, now, see, now I'm all flustered, Josh. We're at AwesomeMovieYear.com. I'm uh, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I am at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at Signalbleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together, including those episodes on Best Friends, Fiends, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. People should check those ones out. I should check that. I haven't, it's weird going back to old episodes. Oh my God, just plug uh, your stuff, Dave. Yeah, I know. Piecing It Together, wherever you listen to podcasts, at PiecingPod on the socials. <laughs> And what do we have coming up in our next episode, Jason? Oh, oh, oh Josh, I'm glad you asked. 2003, also known as the year Christmas began. We're doing a Christmas classic that was released in the year Christmas began. And we left it up to the audience to choose. And they chose a film called Bad Santa. Ho, ho, ho! 
Tune in next time where Jason will not be doing that voice for the entire episode. Tune in for Bad Santa. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. Hi! Can I help you? Yeah! Can I have a dozen red roses, please? Oh, hi, Johnny. I didn't know it was you. Here you go. Ha <laughs> ha! That's me! How much is it? It'll be $18. Here you go. Keep the change. Hi, doggy. You're my favorite customer. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye-bye. Ha <laughs> ha.